There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, and I really do mean simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like avocados, shoes and hat stands. Or laces, places and disgraces. Races... <laughs> Faces and maces. So we could do something all about medieval warfare. Or races could be something about race or it could be something about running. Anyway, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of the kiss, yes, the kiss, is in fact all about witchcraft and the devil... World War One and World War Two, men kissing men, women kissing women, men and women kissing, kissing babies, politicians, voting in the 18th century, poster girls and the Me Too movement. Or that the history of blame is all about the Treaty of Versailles. And it's also all about witchcraft accusations, Nazis and the Jews, the banking crisis and much, much more. And that was a recent one in our series on homeschooling history, isn't it, Sam? Absolutely. I love doing that one. It's brilliant. The man sitting opposite me, let me just say that if history was a Chinese emperor from the <laughs> Ming dynasty, this man would be his fragrant breath, scented with frankincense, myrrh and cinnamon, transported across those many miles of the Silk Road. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I don't think I've ever had such a wonderful and elaborate introduction. Uh, I'm much, much simpler in my own today because the man not sitting opposite me because he is across town during the COVID-19 crisis is Mr Listrine himself. So fresh-breathed <laughs> a historian is he. You can just, you can sense it in his elegant prose. Yes, it's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. I hope you're all well. Uh, today, we are, you've probably worked it out yet, we're doing the history of breath. You know, you mentioned Listerine there. Would that come under the same um, topic as the invention of um, personal hygiene? We've talked about this before, haven't we? The, um, about uh, 
people inventing body odor and advertising in the 50s in and, America, making feel, people feel bad about their appearance. And in fact, in fact, that's exactly what I'm going to be talking about. So you've stolen my Hooray! thunder. So I'm going to be talking, <laughs> effect, I'm effectively going to be talking about bad breath, uh, probably for about half, ah. half an hour. So it's brilliant. It has a fascinating <laughs> history, but we don't, want to start, we don't want to start that. I was wondering how on earth we came up with this topic of breath. And you think that in one of our long road journeys around this country while we were on tour before lockdown, uh, we had a, a go at writing down as many things as we could for new topics for podcasts. And this was one of them. And when I, when I heard you say that you wanted to do it, I had no recollection of that. And in fact, no real sense of how I was going to approach it, which actually is one of the most interesting things about what we do in these podcasts. It's starting from nothing yes. and building up something. It is. And um, I think we were both convinced that the other person came up with the idea <laughs> <laughs> because neither of us had any idea what on earth we were going to do. So it really is a perfect histories of the unexpected topic. Um, it's one we're, I think we're both very fond of because for the simple fact we didn't know where to start. No. Um, but then again, as, as with all of these things, the more you look into it, suddenly history sort of unfolds in front of you. Um, and it, it becomes uh, endlessly fascinating. One of the first things I did was just to find out if there'd been any um, conferences or anything recently in recent years on, on the cultural history of breath, and there have. Um, I'm, I'm sad I've missed them, um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to reading some descriptions of what was going on there. Um, but beyond that, I, I just sort of started to think about the many ways you could begin to pull it apart. And um, it is fascinating, isn't it, James? Um, and also the, the different ways in which it was perceived and thought of in the past. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, too, did a little bit of squirrelling around the internet and came across uh, something on the cultural history of breathing by a scholar mm. called, wonderfully called Oriana Walker, uh, who works at the Max Planck Institute for Wissenschaftsgeschichte, uh, which basically translates from the German as history of science. And she penned a, an incredibly eloquent uh, little piece on what she saw as the cultural history of breathing, which if you will indulge me, I will read out to you here, which is, seems to be a new thing with me. Familiar breathing right under our noses has at times followed and at times constituted the ever-changing boundary between what is considered natural and what is considered human. There was, after all, a time when the presence of a willful autonomous soul was what distinguished the uniquely human from the natural. The soul and its embodied expression had, until the 17th century invention of action, that did not proceed directly from a centre or a central repository of immaterial power of any kind, had been closely associated with winds, with air and with breath. Whether it was believed to be dense matter or pure spirit, whether it was thought to permeate a continuous body movement or to be condensed in the interior of an autonomous individual, the breath was closely associated with uniquely human thought, will and emotion, and the breath therefore determined ways of seeing and being a human body. Together with the rise of new definitions and disciplines of the natural and the human in the late 19th century, 
breathing, we are told, became a fluid and popular object of practice, study and theorising, and at times both subject and object, as in the case of self-experimenting physiologists like Angelo Mosso, who worried about the effect of knowing he was recording on his respiration. A burst of hygiene and self-care manuals suggested that formerly natural breathing could and should be intentionally practised in order to cultivate health, longevity and powerful self-expression. How, asked a 1930 American Journal of Psychology article, learning to inhibit and control breathing, had Harry Houdini managed his death-defying escapes from apparently unlimited variations on death by suffocation. From its beginnings, experimental psychology had used studies of human breathing as well as comparison with that of the occasional owl or cocker spaniel to gain through the body tangible, measurable access to otherwise inaccessible mental contents and experiences including attention, psychosis and aesthetic pleasure. But beneath the well-posed scholarly questions and the popular practices and displays of physical culture lurked more fundamental concerns. Here we are, we cut, cut to the chase. Was man a being capable of autonomous, willful action? And if so, what were the sources of this thought, creativity and self-control? What was breathing, really? That is a, that's a page full, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic place to start, actually, isn't it? Because it, it, it highlights the, um, it's the consciousness of what's going on here. So, I mean, how many times a day are you conscious of your own breathing, do you reckon? Uh, not very often. Not very often, unless, no. until, I do, until I, I do sort of controlled breathing, which is something that I occasionally do just as a form of relaxation, which is something uh, that I learnt from Hillary Clinton, and uh, not personally, of course, but she was on a, she was on a, <laughs> she, she was, I, I I, I'm not name dropping like that, but she was on a chat show after she had been defeated by Trump in the last presidential election. And I think for her, it was an, uh, you know, utter disaster. She couldn't believe it. Um, and I imagine, you know, was getting depressed in all sorts of ways. I mean, I'm, I'm making that up. But one of the ways in which she coped was by doing this sort of um, yoga breathing, which is where you you basically put your a finger over one nostril and breathe up through the other nostril, and then change fingers so that you're so that you're breathing out of the nostril that you've just breathing out of the nostril that you've just held, and then you breathe in through that, and then you release the nostril, and then and then swap over. And so it's a sort of a way of sort of breathing in and out of the same nostril and passing it over. And actually, it really, really works. My friend Lee Miller, who's a brilliant, um, a brilliant uh, yoga instructor, uh, taught me how to do this as well when I when I mentioned it to him. So occasionally I'm 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 conscious of my own breathing. I mean, it's interesting that the the whole kind of controlled breathing thing and yoga instruction. So there is a part of the history of breathing is uh, you could sit down and you can study when the focus of controlled breathing really came about. And what I've seemed to come across is, you know, your reference to Houdini is really interesting because, um, I mean, he was doing his stuff in the, in the first uh, 1910, 1920-ish, wasn't he? 
um, the first couple of decades of the 20th century. But that's exactly when people start to really come to get to grips with controlled breathing, or certainly in the West. It's very different in the East, where there's yep. a very long, long, long tradition of it. But, um, you know, if you've got Houdini hanging himself upside down in a tub of water, everyone's going to wonder a bit how he's managed to do it. But there's clearly... Um, and there's also an added element of science here, which is to do with understanding what what the process of breathing does. So you've got the, the, the history of gas exchange, which is something I've learned through homeschooling with my daughter, my teenage daughter. So we've been doing a bit of biology. But the, the pr- principle here is that the gas exchange, you're delivering oxygen um, from the lungs into the bloodstream, and then you're eliminating carbon dioxide from the bloodstream to the lungs. So if you're only yeah. breathing at a fraction of the amount that you can, then you're not um, eliminating as much carbon dioxide as you could. You're not delivering as much oxygen as you can. So the the purpose and sense behind it, there's a very, very sort of clear idea that the more you deeply breathe, apparently infants breathe much more deeply than adults, the more you breathe deeply, the healthier you'd get. And there's the more sort of meditative aspects of it have become very popular now with mindfulness. And so much of that involves breathing techniques. But it's um, yep. it's it's very ancient indeed. But I love the idea of this suddenly becoming a thing in the 20s and 30s with um, when you've got Houdini. And most of the time he's trying to suffocate himself. Yes. And and, and it also makes me think about free divers as well. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the ability for the ability for people to hold their breath for extended periods of time underwater and therefore be able to to fish. Um, it makes me think of that brilliant Luc Besson movie, uh, The Big Blue with Jean Reno, the brilliant, brilliant Jean Reno, uh, where he goes, you know, on these sort of just amazing sort of explorations under the sea, literally trying to sort of test himself as 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 rich as far as he can, his sort of his human endurance, which I suppose is what is what Houdini's doing as well. Um, but for me, um, I, I took I took breath in a in quite a literal sense. And and partly because we've just done a lot of reading on the kiss. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was to connect it to the kiss uh, and, of course, to talk about um, to connect it to bad breath. So if we go back to sort of thinking about the kiss, the kiss, we talked in our podcast on the kiss and the emergence of the, the, the kiss has a sort of very long sort of history, some of which you could argue is linear, that it moves from something that is ceremonial to something that is more personal and erotic. And if you think here, the the erotic nature of the kiss, so a kiss between lovers, between married couple, is something that you can connect to dentistry and good hygiene. And this, of course, connects us to the smile as well. And in our episode on the on the smile, we looked at in French society the way in which French smiles over the 18th century through good dentistry and oral hygiene were producing these sort of, you know, perfect smiles rather than the sort of decrepit mouths. But for the in the 17th century, you can see the erotic kiss in the words of the playwright John Ford. He sees it as the first taste of love the first certainty of hope, the first hope of obtaining, the first obtaining of favour, 
the first favour of grant, the first grant of assurance, the first and principalist assurance of affection, the first shadow of the substance of after-contented happiness, happy pleasure, pleasing heaven. So it becomes this sort of imbued with this sort of eroticism, a very, very, a very sort of romantic trope in literature, the lover's kiss. And you can see that throughout um, the Renaissance period, but you can trace it back to the Middle Ages, even to sort of biblical times. But what interrupts this is, of course, foul smelling bad breath, so halitosis. And there is a medical dimension to bad breath as well, and a medical dimension to um, pe to kissing and people who, um, you know, were worried about kissing because of bad breath and because of the contagion that would come about because of that. And apparently the Roman Emperor Tiberius, uh, 14 to 37 AD, banned kissing because he believed it to be responsible for the spread of a disease, an unpleasant fungal disease called mentagra, uh, which he saw disfiguring faces of Roman nobles and could only be, be caused by a sort of serious operation. Um, and then in 1439, in England, the House of Commons petitioned the then king, Henry VI, asking that kissing be temporarily omitted from the ceremony for night service so as to avoid, avoid endangering his life, drawing a dreadful pestilence that was going around at the time. So you can connect it to, you know, problems associated with um, bad breath and disease spread by that. But also there's a, there's a lot of evidence for just a sort of visceral repugnance to kissing because of people's poor oral hygiene that again is connected to um to 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 sort of bad breath and we we can trace this in ver in various ways um you can have a look at what the roman epigrammatist marshall who's writing in the late 1st century ad uh, wrote about a a nauseous experience of having to kiss the lips and faces of people covered with snot ulcers, scabs, dirt, and exuding a fetid smell of the aftermath of oral sex. Um, and Michel de Montaigne, writing in the 16th century, picks this up um, and basically um, is disgusted by pe kissing people who are dirty and ugly. Um, and you can follow this all the way through um, the 18th century, uh, and look at people's real kind of concern with with bad breath. There is a there's a really lovely uh, extract in the diary of Dudley Ryder, uh, 17th century English writer, and he describes um, he describes on Wednesday, uh, September the fourteenth, seventeen sixteen. Uh, it says here seventeen fifteen. Sorry, uh, where he 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 writes. The afternoon passed away in walking about the garden and these ladies' company and the ladies that he, he's visiting Westbrook Hay in Hertfordshire, uh, uh, his brother's residence. And the ladies were Mrs Cowley, a young widow, and her mother, Mrs Jermyn. Um, the young widow is indeed a fine lady, 
What troubled me most was a fear I had stinking breath and it was perceived. This makes me of late very uneasy in company. I am resolved as soon as possible to find out the truth of it. And though I think to ask my mother that question, it sounds so odd to ask whether my breath stinks that I don't know how to ask it. So there we go. Stinky breath, halitosis. Who knew that it had its own history, Sam? It's amazing, isn't it? And also uh, I, what I've found quite extraordinary about this is the the sheer variety of people who are who are, are, are thinking about it breathing or breath and mm. are writing about it. It's mm. absolutely fascinating. Um, just going back to the, what I was saying about gas exchange, gaseous exchange. Yes. The, 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 the sheer kind of international variety of scholars working on it is fast, fascinating from, from um, whether it's the Romans, there are um, Arabs writing on it in the 13th century, then the Spanish in the 17th century, the Italians in the 18th century. And I, I got really interested in this. So in the 18th century, we've got Evangelista Torricelli, who's living in Florence, and he finds out something fundamentally important to, to it, and that is explaining atmospheric pressure. Hmm. So atmospheric pressure is a crucial scientific breakthrough, understanding it is, because for your lungs to inflate, you need the air pressure in your lungs to be less than the air outside of the lungs, um, which is because air moves from high pressure areas to low pressure areas. Um, but at high altitudes, this is where it gets interesting, the air pressure is lower, making it harder to breathe. And that is one of the reasons why there was massive breakthroughs in the understanding of breathing during the Second World War. Listen to this. This is brilliant. Um, at the University of Rochester in New York, there's this guy called Wallace Fenn. And he has he assembles a group of three scientists, physiologists, and they've got a variety of skills. And this says something about um, the, the need to adapt in wartime. So the guy leading it is called Wallace Fenn, and his main interests are muscle energetics. And he's invented or named something called the Fenn effect, which describes the heat induced by muscle contraction. He then gets a guy called Herman Rahn involved, who is an expert on the pituitary glands of birds and just before the war had written on the reproductive behaviour of rattlesnakes. <laughs> and the, final, the final part of this holy trilogy of amazing scientists is a guy called, a guy called Arthur Otis, who has spent his entire life studying the effects of drugs on the oyster heart and then worked on the development of grasshopper eggs. Right, so you've got these three guys together and... It all, the scientific community is given an absolute walloping by the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, as much as American life is fundamentally changed. And so you've got these experts on grasshopper eggs and the behavior of rattlesnakes and heat in muscles who are suddenly put together and given the challenge of understanding breathing in aeroplanes. Hmm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
and they manage to do it. They, they make these, these huge advances. Um, so they, they study aviation physiology um, and they laid many of the foundations for how we currently understand pulmonary gas exchange and mechanics, which is what I've been teaching my 14 year old daughter. Um, and some of the early works, really interesting, where you're, you've got this problem with pressure breathing because it was thought at the time that raising the pressure of the inhaled gas would give an aviator an advantage in flying at a high altitude. I never don't know where they got with their work, but that was the problem that they initially started with. So there you go. It's, it's an example of how um, warfare has actually really changed our understanding of of breathing and breath. And another guy who was involved in it was called Antoine Lavoisier, much, much older, 18th century, last sort of the last 25 years or so of the 18th century. He was one of the uh, most famous uh, scientists in history, particularly in the history of chemistry and biology. <clears throat> and in the 1770s, I came across him when I was writing my book about the American Revolution, because he, he makes these hugely important discoveries about the role played by oxygen in all sorts of things, including breathing, but also in um, explosions. So on the one hand, he's, he's kind of understanding breathing and the source of life. On the other side, he's making the most amazing gunpowder that anyone's ever made before because he's understood for the very first time the chemistry of explosions. And it's one of the reasons why the French were so brilliant in their naval warfare at the beginning of the, um, the War of American Independence because of this guy who'd, who'd um, been solving problems with breathing and then turned it into, into solving problems with gunpowder. So there you go. I said it's two tracks. In this uh, in this current podcast, uh, the breathing and the bad breath, and it is back oh. to bad breath that I wish to return uh, and to connect bad breath to advertising in the nineteen fifties and mouthwash. Now, as we establish, this concern with halitosis actually has ancient origins, and you can go back into ancient times to ancient Egypt to the classical world of Greece and Rome and even to ancient China. And you can see that people at the time used various things to scent their breath, whether it be cinnamon or myrrh or honey or or cloves. Um, so people have always wanted to sort of, you know, have, control uh, the way in which their breath smelt. And part of this, as we were saying, is because it is because bad breath is associated with disease. Um, it, during the Renaissance period, um, there, uh, the doctor to the king of France, Henri III, uh, argued that bad breath was, and I quote, caused by dangerous miasma that falls into the lungs and through the heart, causing severe damages. So there's this real sense in which bad breath is bad for you. But then by the time, and this is, this is appalling history because I'm jumping across the centuries here to talk about the 19, late 19th century in America and then into the, um, into the, through to the, the 1950s. When I think, as you said at the beginning of the episode, that during this period, you can see America experiencing what might be described as a hygiene revolution. So particularly with urbanites um, who were once suspicious of bathing, like their European counterparts, suddenly embrace showers and toothbrushes and bathrooms. But also it's revealing because what it tells us about the way in which advertising companies 
assisted by marketing departments, played on people's insecurities about beauty and cleanliness and attractiveness. And therefore, the history of breath is a history that speaks to us of both ruthless bullying advertising companies and a perception of male and female anxiety in history. And it's really quite shocking. If you have a look at some of the early adverts around Listerine, so oral antiseptic mouthwash, they warned American women of the life-destroying impact of halitosis. I want to tell you about a little bit about this because what happens is Listerine is developed uh, essentially as a, as a surgical antiseptic. It's then used as a floor cleaner, as a cure for gonorrhea. And then at some point in the 1920s and beyond, it's repackaged as a sort of medical cure for halitosis or bad breath. And if you have a look at some of these early adverts, I just want to read them to you. Um, Don't fool yourself. Since halitosis never announces, announces itself to the victim, you simply cannot know when you have it. And there's a picture on this poster of a couple in an embrace about to kiss and then seated by the side of them, a very forlorn looking woman who's looking down, her hands clasped upon her knees. And obviously she is not going to is not going to be kissed. And the advert goes on saying halitosis makes you unpopular. It is unexcusable, can be instantly remedied. No matter how charming you may be or how fond of you your friends are, you cannot expect them to put up with halitosis, unpleasant breath, forever. They may be nice to you, but it is an effort. Don't fool yourself that you never have halitosis, as do so many self-assured people who constantly offend this way. Read the facts in the lower right-hand corner and you will see that your chance of escape is slight. Nor should you count on being able to detect this ailment in yourself. Halitosis doesn't announce itself. You are seldom aware you have it. Recognising these truths, nice people end any chance of offending by systematically rinsing the mouth with Listerine every morning, every night, and between times when necessary, especially before meeting others. Keep a bottle handy in home and office for this purpose. Listerine ends halitosis instantly. And so it goes on. And then there's a little bit in the bottom. Read the facts. One third of people had halitosis. 68 hairdressers state about every third woman, many of them from the wealthy classes, is halitoxic. Who should know better than they? And then there's another... Uh, uh, there's another poster campaign, and this is probably slightly more famous. It's another Listerine one, and it has the strap line, often a bridesmaid, never a bride. And then, it, and then you've got poor, poor Janice, as we're, we're told, basically holding, dressed up in a bridesmaid outfit and holding the bouquet that's been given to her. And again, looking forlornly dejected that she hasn't been married. And the advert explains... Janice is a familiar type. She's popular with the girls, attractive to men for a while. Men seem serious, then just courteous. Finally, oblivious. Halitosis, unpleasant breath, is a roadblock to romance. And the tragedy is you're never aware that you're offending.
and then it goes on to to basically say why you should why you should um have why you should take listerine listerine antiseptics stops bad breath four times better than toothpaste so there we are uh, from bad breath to curing of bad breath and the terrible advertising uh, in America in the first half of the 20th century, encouraging, encouraging anxieties among men and women about how unattractive they are. Halitoxic is my new favourite word. It's great, it's isn't absolutely it? Brilliant. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I came across one thing which uh, I found profoundly shocking. Hmm. This was from a brilliant book called Breathing Race into the Machine, The Surprising Career of the Spirometer from Plantation to Genetics. Ooh. And uh, this is by Lundy Brown, um, 2014 University of Minnesota Press. Uh, it's one of the most interesting history chapters I've read for a very long time. Um, the, the particular chapter I'm talking about is called Black Lungs and White Lungs, The Science Ooh. of White Supremacy in the 19th Century United States. And it explains how this prevalent notion, prevalent notion that blacks had weaker lungs than whites took root in the 19th century in America and how it was scientifically investigated and proven. Um, and it is, I mean, just, just extraordinary. What really uh, I, f I found um, interesting was this, the origins of it are in Thomas Jefferson, or can be traced to Thomas Jefferson's um, uh, pamphlet he wrote in 1781 called Notes on the State of Virginia. And in that, he explores the physical distinctions as he sees them between the races. And it includes a difference in the structure of the pulmonary apparatus, the principal regulator of animal heat. And this, as he understands, it renders blacks more tolerant of heat and less so of cold than the whites. And this idea, clearly circulated in 1780s, is then taken hold of primarily by Southern physicians who use science to defend slavery. Um, it's very interesting. So it's different to the way that Northerners, Northern doctors um, are are explaining it. They use something called a, a polygenist interpretations of racial origins, which means that human races, as they see it, have come from different origins. But it's the southern doctors who are using science and they measure skulls. That's one of the things they do to um, make claims about intelligence, morality and all sorts of things. But it ends up focusing almost primarily on the lungs. One of the key guys here is um, he's a plantation owner. He's a doctor. He's called Samuel Cartwright. He lived between 1793 and 1863 and he uses a scientific examination of the lungs comparing blacks and and whites using this uh, device called a spirometer it's it's a sort of an apparatus for measuring the volume of air which is inhaled and exhaled and it can create a sort of graph of it and um, his conclusions are really quite extraordinary he particularly makes a point that it is he, he basically uses his results to prove that blacks are better at agricultural labor than whites um, he, he argues um, if left free the lungs of blacks cannot vitalize the blood and then goes on to explain that incompletely vitalized blood was a racial characteristic um, which he described as lack of vitality and that could only be cured by forced labour. But it wasn't just um, Cartwright doing this sort of thing. It then goes on, and there's a whole chapter to this, after the American Civil War, when a, a pamphlet is 
is published called The Investigations in the Military and Anthropological Statistics of American Soldiers. This all happens in the aftermath of a battle of Bull Run when Lincoln authorises a group of white intellectuals and doctors to create a United States Sanitary Commission to oversee relief efforts and to improve the hygienic conditions in the army. And this is filled with pages and pages and pages of data. And the work on the lungs is written by a guy called Benjamin Apthorpe Gould. And what he does is he compares white soldiers and sailors with those he labels full blacks, others he labels as mulattoes and others as Indians. And the statistics are extraordinary. So here we are. Um, what he's done is he's measured the lung capacity of white soldiers in usual vigour, and that is measured at 175.655 cubic inches. Compared with that, you have the lung capacity of full blacks in usual vigour at only 165.319. And then in not in usual vigour, the white soldiers 155, and then the full blacks, as he labels them, 149. So very distinctive differences in the numbers, in the statistics. And what's interesting is how those statistics had actually been manipulated to create these tables. They were, um, they were used to, to, to prove an existing understanding, an existing argument. And some uh, work has come to light by historians who've explored how he coped with criticism from other doctors at the time, ignoring the complexity of the data that he'd actually, um, actually created. So what you end up here is with lung capacity primarily being um, one of the most important things used to document racial differences between blacks and whites. And in the UK, it's fundamentally different because they are more focused on occupation as being a dominant um, way of analysing differences between, um, between peoples. I thought it was extraordinary, fascinating. It is. I, could, I could read that all day. And what's what's interesting about it is the way in which race and race differences are constructed through the way in which people think about biology. So the fact that yeah. the fact that you've basically got um, white scientists doing these kind of experiments, you know, they are they're thinking in particularly racially segregated ways. In coming up with these with these theories, so that's absolutely fascinating the way in which the way in which we can breathe uh, race history into into breath. Now, I want to end with one final uh, example, which is uh, mouth to mouth resuscitation. So it's in fact the <laughs> nice. kiss of life. So it's it's breathing into people's mouths to keep them alive. Now, this is something that really takes off in the 1950s in America, this mouth-to-mouth -mouth, uh, ventilation, um, and particularly by two individuals called James Elam and Peter Safar. And they basically do put together the basic techniques of mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, uh, more or less a sort of a, a how-to manual. They don't necessarily discover it, but what they do is sort of pull together things that techniques that people have used and it's the sort of basics of you know when people have a, a cardiac arrest but what is more fascinating and probably more unexpected is that this had been discovered in the 18th century 200 years or so earlier and then it fell out of use and that's what I want to tell you about and it's because I've been reading a brilliant essay by the historian Luke Davidson 
which is called The Kiss of Life in the 18th Century, The Fate of an Ambiguous Kiss. And he starts by talking about a talk, a lecture to the Royal Society of London in 1745. And it's delivered by a very well-known Quaker physician, a man called John Fothergill. And Fothergill is talking about something that he had recently read, which was a small essay by a man called William Tossack. Brilliant name. He's a Scottish physician, previously very little known about him. And Tossack describes in this paper how he had come across uh, a miner um, who was apparently uh, dead, um, who'd been overwhelmed by fumes uh, from the mine, and how he had basically revived him. And in the essay, he describes what he did. So he stopped the nostrils of the collier so that he couldn't sort of no air could get in. And then he blew into the miner's mouth uh, with quotes as strong as I could, raising the chest up and then and then says within, you know, within moments, he identified six or seven very quick beats of the heart. And then the pulse came back the thorax, the throat sort of started to move and the man basically came to life. And Fothergill um, describes this and wonders whether this, um, this practice of inflating the lungs might be applied to the happy purpose of rescuing life from such imminent danger. And he, he ponders whether it might be useful for recovering drowned people, so people who sort of fell into the, the River Thames. And basically, um, this has a sort of um, a very sort of um, uneven history. And there are some efforts to follow up on this. Um, it's, it's not taken on board by the scientific community for various reasons, because they see it as, as slightly odd, there isn't enough training, and then it falls out of favour. But after, um, after Fothergill's lecture, um, it, um, it, it was applied to people who were drowning. Because what had happened, what happened before, for people who have sort of died of drowning, the victims were hung upside down by the heels. And this was done in order to allow the water just to drain out of them. Or they were rolled over a barrel to have water basically just literally squeezed out from their insides. But other than this practice, there's very little done to, to sort of develop this. Um, and so this lecture that he gives, uh, people start hearing about it. And about 20 or so years later, in um, 1767, a group of Dutch gentlemen... Uh, based in Amsterdam, um, establish a society that is basically formed in order to deal with the extraordinary number of people who accidentally fall into the city's canals and drown. And what they set up is a sort of group of people, uh, voluntary members, um, who will use these recommended techniques to deal with these drowned people. Um, from there, it's taken up in 
St. Petersburg, in Milan, in Venice, in Hamburg, and also in the British Isles. And it's taken up there by two medical men, William Hawes, who's an apothecary, and Thomas Cogan, who's a physician. Um, and they form what becomes known as the Royal Humane Society, the, or the RHS. And they use these resuscitation techniques to revive people who have drowned in the Thames. So in other words, what we're seeing here is, the, is basically um, this kiss of life breathing into people's uh, lungs as a way of reviving them and surviving. And it's a really good way of thinking about how breath has a, has a history related to the kiss, not only in terms of bad breath and halitosis, but also literally delivering life-saving breath into the lungs. The problem is that it doesn't work properly. And there's work done reviewing the 600 or so cases published by the RHS that, that talk about successful recovery, but on none of them is resuscitation used. And, and also people slightly distrust this sort of idea of blowing breath into people. So it very much doesn't take off. It falls out of fashion. There are tales of a, of a, a Parisian doctor who in the 18th century dragged somebody out of a river and then died from having sort of breathed in the, the terrible sort of miasma coming out of this person's lungs when he tries to give him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. So it falls by the wayside for quite some time. And of course, people are also exactly the kind of things that we were talking about earlier on that put people off about kissing people. That's exactly the same thing that puts people off giving life-to-life, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. So the things like venereal disease, stinking breath, the colour and look of a dead body, you know, kissing a recovering person, it isn't particularly nice. And the scientific community are not particularly in favour of it. So it's not until the 1950s that the kiss of life, mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, really takes off. Wow. James, that was a tour de force. I enjoyed that very much. Bless you. And it has made me realise that you can go on and with a similar theme, but more a metaphorical one, and you could explore the campaign of the Armada and how God's breath blew oh. and then saved England from invasion. And there are, there, are, there are more examples than just that one. I can tell you that now. We could breathe fresh air into everything. We could. I and um, I have an entire section on um, on Chinese understanding of qi and also birdsong, which I'm going to save for another time Excellent. because my birdsong stuff was particularly interesting. And it's all to do with the history of understanding how birds breathe and make noises. And you would not believe how fascinating that is. So there you are, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do please, please... Uh, follow us on social media. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm on at James Daybell. And the podcast is on at Unexpected Pod. Please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com for everything we've got um, got on. And also we have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected, where you can support us if you so choose. It would really make an enormous difference to what we do. We spend as much time as we can on these. We absolutely love doing it. And anything you can offer us per month 
would help us carry on. So that would be greatly appreciated. And also, please spread the word about our homeschooling series. We've massively enjoyed doing that. And we've got many more to come. We're about to do the history of bullies and the rise of the Nazis. So that's it. Hope to speak to you soon, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. Be well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 